Welcome to Conversations with I Follow the Leader, made possible by I Follow the Leader, LLC. I am your host, Antonetta Mosley. I'm the CEO and Principal Leader at I Follow the Leader and a Certified Diversity Professional. I founded the firm in 2016 because I believe the historical prototype of what a successful leader looks like needs to change. We help leaders and organizations thrive and reach their highest potential. This is a place where those of a different feather can soar together. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, everyone. I hope you are doing well today. I am so excited to welcome you to episode 29 of Conversations with I Follow the Leader. Today, we are going to have Dr. Jasmine Marks on, and we are going to be discussing how to recognize and disrupt a biased workplace culture. Episode 29, How to Recognize and Disrupt a Biased Workplace Culture. I have had the privilege to work with Dr. Jasmine Marks. She is not only a leader at I Follow the Leader, she also does this work as a Senior Director of Equity at a Community Health Center. You are in for a treat today. Today, we will be discussing how white supremacy culture is often normalized and present even when we may not notice it. Today, Dr. Marks will define white supremacy culture for us and share ways your workplace may be operating from this biased lens. White supremacy culture often shows up in decision-making, how people are expected to look and behave, and the leadership traits valued within organization. I hope you are ready to learn some disruptive strategies you can use, and I am so excited to bring on a phenomenal leader person and someone who really is disrupting uh, the field, the industry, and who is not afraid to let us know what should we actually be talking about. So welcome, welcome, Jasmine. So great to have you on today. Thank you so much, Antonetta. So glad to be here. And I'm really excited about this conversation. Yeah. So tell us a little more before we get started about you. Uh, how did you come to the work? Why Why are you here doing this challenging but, but critical work? Yeah. So I love to uh, talk about narratives often, um, especially counter narratives to disrupt um, sort of those stories that were socialized to believe. So I, I often love sharing my own story. Um, so I grew up inner city of Cleveland. Uh, my environment was quite homogenous. All of my relatives are black. I went to school with um, black folks, Hispanic folks. And it wasn't until my undergraduate experience where I went to a rural, predominantly white institution in the middle of nowhere, Ohio, um, where I began to experience all dimensions of racism. And it was quite jarring because my parents did a pretty, pretty good job of instilling within me um, just pride and confidence in my identity as a Black woman. And so to go into this predominantly white space and to experience a myriad of things from 
from leaders in the organization to my peers, it was quite jarring. And it, it was there that I knew that I wanted to do this work in some way. I didn't know exactly how it would manifest, but it's been a really beautiful journey. Um, I've worked in higher education settings in the diversity sector. And most recently I transitioned to um, a community health center here in Ohio, where I get to do this work on a daily basis. Thank you for sharing, and, and we're so lucky to, to have you here in, in your thought leadership. And so I would love to start out today, uh, as we know, right, talking about race, critical race theory, white supremacy, often is a courageous conversation today. And so at I Follow the Leader, we put courageous in quotes because our hope is that these conversations will go from courageous to commonplace. But I want to acknowledge many people probably haven't discussed white supremacy culture in their workplaces, in the spaces they're in. So can you define for us what is white supremacy culture? Why is this conversation today so important? Yeah, excellent question. I think you really hit the nail on the head there. Like the way that white supremacy will one way the white supremacy continues to uh, morph, maintain itself and manifest is by not talking about it, right? Is by not naming it, is by not having the language to name it or the skills to actively disrupt it. So um, before I define white supremacy culture, I think it's important to define white supremacy. So white supremacy is an ideology um, or belief that white people are in some way superior to people of other racial groups. Um, of course, we know that to be untrue. However, it's really been built into the fabric of our country, well, really our world, um, and we're socialized to believe these things, whether explicitly or implicitly. Um, and thus, because there's this perceived superiority of white folks, um, in some way, many people believe that that means they should have power over others, whether that's holding leadership roles in organizations making decisions in organizations or that their way in some way is the right way. Um, and the key here, right, is that even if there aren't any folks who are actively racist, right, present in organizations, that these traits, these characteristics within the culture can still govern how we operate and how we treat folks. And so connecting that to white supremacy culture, white supremacy culture are the traits, the behaviors, the characteristics that govern how people are expected to show up and how organizations believe it best to operate. Um, and another key thing about white supremacy culture is that it invalidates and erases those different ways of knowing, thinking, and being. So I remember being a child and hearing like my elders talk about intuition, right? Trusting your gut and your intuition. Well, in organizations that are governed by white supremacy culture, intuition is not a valid sort of source of data. And often it's invalidated or delegitimized in some way. 
Um, but what I love is that there's so many resources out there now to help us actually have this conversation. So the original article around uh, white supremacy culture was written in 1999 by Tima Okun in collaboration with Kenneth Jones and really informed by the work of other BIPOC scholars and racial justice advocates. And um, Tima actually has a really cool new website with updated characteristics uh, that was released in 2021. So that will be my breakdown for white supremacy culture. I love that. Thank you. And, and I think it's so important to, and I know we're going to get into this, to acknowledge that there are traits that are important to specific cultures. And so you have to actually learn some of those things. Uh, I've been in organizations where right, even people helping other people, such as nonprofits, weren't aware of the traits of those that they were serving. And that can be extremely detrimental right, for those who were volunteering and for the clients. Um, so let's dig into it. Um, let's start talking about some of those traits that people may not recognize are white supremacy culture in their workplaces, but that often are happening, things that are coming up. Let's talk about some of those. Yeah, so there are quite a few, um, but I think focusing on the ones that probably show up most frequently, and a lot of these show up in combination with others, um, but some of my favorites that I see often in just the way that organizations operate include perfectionism, which is huge, especially when I think about my time in uh, higher education, it's ever present. Um, either or thinking, which can affect how we make decisions. Um, competition is another one that folks don't talk about often, but we very much so know that it's present and just based upon our socialization in the United States, um, everything is a competition. We're very much so set in that mind where we have to win, we have to be the best. And what that does is it um, prevents us from actually collaborating or really innovating. Um, and then another one is uh, that I really like is fear of open conflict. So you mentioned earlier that uh, we want for these courageous conversations to eventually become commonplace. Well, what prevents that often in organizations is a fear of conflict. And what is a struggle in organizations is normalizing conflict, like conflict is okay conflict is good. Conflict begets change and evolution and innovation. Most people view it often as a threat, right? And really um, not addressing conflict is the biggest threat to a lot of organizations. So those are some of the ones that I think would be cool for us to talk about a little bit more today. I love that. Thank you. And I think it's so important to talk about these things uh, and how they impact how each of us shows up. And the fact that with anything else that is biased, right, if we are not aware of it, then it could be taking over everything we're doing and we may not know. And so the goal is to take things that are an implicit bias um, and take those things that are hidden and actually learn and educate ourselves so that we can grow and improve. So. 
thank you so much for, for being here, for sharing some of these things. And so let's talk about, I think, like you said, a lot of these are intertwined. So perfectionism and competition, I think, are so intertwined, uh, especially often, right? People are pitted against each other in the workplace. It's not how good can you be in your role, but whoever is better is the one who will prevail. And so can you talk a little bit more about perfectionism and competition and, and how that might show up? Oh, absolutely. So um, I, I'll probably start with how we are like socialized and just really um, indoctrinated sort of to buy into this belief uh, that we should not only be uh, the winner, <laughs> but that we must win at all costs. And so um, I remember like just being a student and everything from test taking to sports to activities, you were um, you were socialized to believe that you had to be the best. Um, and what that does to a person's um, just outlook or just their approach is that it prevents us from actually leaning on others and collaborating. And because most folks don't develop collaborate collaboration skills or healthy collaboration skills, um, what happens is when they're presented with those opportunities, um, there always seems to be some sort of struggle. So when I connect that back to organizations, right, when we think about competition, and we think about um, departments, for example, um, often you'll see leaders who um, maybe are need more assistance in their leadership development. They might pit employees against one another, or they might think that, hey, this is a good way for me to elicit um, commitment from my team if I make it fun or if I make it a competition. That might work in some places and for some people. But with that being the ethos of one's department or team, it can be really, really exhausting. Um, folks can feel like they can never meet those expectations. And it prevents teams from actually forging that camaraderie and collaboration that's necessary to move the mission forward. When you tackle on perfectionism to competition, oh my goodness, people feel like they cannot make a single misstep. And that if they do, there will be negative consequences. I remember early on in my professional career, um, and I think it's important for us to talk about various intersecting identities and how that shows up for folks differently. But for me, as a Black woman in professional spaces, I not only felt like I had to be perfect, but that I had to work twice as hard in order to get half as much. And I know you're familiar with that uh, struggle as well, too. But really, when organizations value perfectionism and competition, they hurt us all. So not just me as a Black woman, but they also hurt uh, white folks in the space as well, too, who are striving to do really, really good work, but, are who, but who are being pressured to ascribe to these norms and these values. I, you know, those who watch often or listen often, you know, I'm always looking down because I'm taking notes. 
Um, and you talking about the double tax, right? The double tax that so many underrepresented people feel having to be twice as good to get half as much is just really important to acknowledge because if you have this competition or perfectionism happening in the workplace and then you are challenged to be twice as good as anyone else, the burden that that puts on people in underrepresented groups is tremendous. Uh, it, it's just really important to acknowledge. And another quote I wrote that you said is, it hurts us all. And I think that's so important to say, is it doesn't just hurt those in underrepresented groups. We're in the great resignation, people are not feeling wellness and belonging in the workplace, and leaders have to acknowledge that starts with them. Uh, Dr. Marks and I were talking before, and I was just thanking her because I call myself a recovering perfectionist, right? Uh, where I have to acknowledge and I try to tell my team now we're going to make mistakes, right? We will take accountability, but we have to acknowledge that mistakes will happen and actually help people grow through it. And as a leader, I have to challenge myself. I was out last week and I had to challenge myself not to just push myself to do the work, right? Um, to be able to be vulnerable and be courageous and right, connect with our clients for me to connect with the team and say, I need a few days off. And I think about early in my career, I would never do that. Like I would have had to completely, right, be broken down, right, beyond sick, can't move before I would say, okay, I need a break. And so we have to acknowledge that this is happening in workplaces. The great resignation isn't happening just for no reason. Uh, so Jasmine, do you have some tips for us? How can we help to alleviate this pressure? Uh, how can we overcome perfectionism and competition in our, in our workplaces? Absolutely. And I appreciate you so much for sharing that, Antonetta, because it is um, something that I think a lot of people really understand. Um, the other thing I was going to say is that it starts at the top. And you, you may reference to this. It starts with the leader setting the tone for their team, for their work, for their department. Um, if you right, as a leader, are not modeling for your team what disruptive strategies or behaviors look like, um, then you, you really are doing them and yourself a disservice. Um, but I love spaces like this because sometimes people just don't know where to get where to get started. Additionally, um, they also might not know how to incorporate these practices into just their daily work. So here, here are some that I can share with you. Um, the first is one of my favorite favorite quotes is that rest is a form of resistance. And with this constant go, 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 grind, grind, grind culture, um, we feel like our worth is attached to our productivity. Um, to disrupt white supremacy culture, right? We attach our worth with how well we are. And a lot of organizations are beginning to focus on wellness and belonging and the connection that it does have to retention. But the first thing I would say is that rest, rest is integral. And so some departments, some teams, some organizations actually build rest into their 80 hour work week. And so they have policies or procedures or practices where they say, okay, so 20% of your time 
should be just for you. You you choose what you do with that time, but 20% of those 80 hours should be for your rest, your rejuvenation, your recommitment to yourself and to the work. Additionally, I think it's extremely important for collaboration to be modeled and to actually be um, rewarded. Like in a lot of organizations, what typically is rewarded is, oh, this person did this by themselves, or they pursued this grant opportunity by themselves, or they made this new connection by themselves. If you're disrupting white supremacy culture, you hold the belief that no one does anything alone, right? And so being overly intentional about recognizing collectives and how we relied on one another to get things done will help to disrupt some of that um, competitive, just innate competitive nature within organizations. Um, and then the last thing I'll talk about is just the fatigue associated with constantly being required to show up. That it is exhausting to not just have to show up, but to show up and to be perfect, to be without any flaw or error. And that is not realistic. We are humans and we are inherently flawed and we're evolving and learning and growing every day. I've seen many organizations really cultivate a culture of like strengths-based development and learning to really help disrupt this belief that you have to be perfect, that you can't do anything wrong. And really just like um, restorative or transformative justice related practices where we don't throw anyone away. There's accountability, right? And we hold folks accountability for problematic behavior. We refer to our policies and refine them to ensure that they're up to date and accurate. But we give people the opportunity to come back to us, to return to the work, to return to the team, to return to themselves. Wow, that was so powerful. Um, so for, for those listening, I'm going to come back to this section. We started about minute 17. Those last three minutes were just so powerful. Um, you sharing some ways that we can overcome white supremacy culture. I just want to quickly highlight some of those because I think it's important. Uh, rest is a form of resistance. Collaboration should be modeled and rewarded. Recognize the collective. No one should be doing anything alone in a workplace. Fatigue, acknowledging fatigue and also leaning into restorative justice practices and don't throw anyone away. I mean, those are all such amazing gems on their own, but together so powerful. And so thank you, Jasmine. And, and let's transition to one that I know and we know, especially in this work, is so hard for people. So conflict. Uh, that was another thing that we talked about, a trait, avoiding conflict, can you tell us a little more about why avoiding conflict uh, is a part of white supremacy culture and, and how we can take some of these steps to overcome the, the fear of conflict? Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, when I think about conflict, I think about how just from our childhood, right, we're socialized to believe that conflict is this negative, scary, or bad thing. Um, when in all actuality, when a conflict arises, it's a signal, right? Or an um, indication that something is misaligned, that someone's needs aren't met, 
or that we have to change the way that we're doing things. In many organizations, conflict is viewed as a threat to the status quo, um, which really we should be threatening the status quo, right? What served us 20 years ago organizationally does not serve us today. Like even if we just think about how far we have come societally, societally and our technological advances, what we were doing 30 years ago does not would not apply or work today. For some things like technology, it's so easy for us to constantly update and evolve and change. For things like addressing white supremacy culture and organizations, specifically fear fear of open conflict, um, people get really, really uh, philosophical about it and like, oh, well, I don't think this is this would be possible or this is like insurmountable. And I'm like, no, actually, it is not. The first strategy that folks have to definitely employ is they have to be able to name it, right? N name what's happening, name what's going on. The second is don't be afraid of it. Like if you think that it is um, going to disrupt your day, disrupt your schedule, disrupt your calendar, it probably needs to, right? It's probably a conversation or a situation that has been bubbling right and often in organizations we allow things to fester we don't hold people accountable for behaviors and they become these bigger problems down the road whether it's actual litigation <laughs> um, or someone is um harmed um and it's it's so important to recognize the signs and symptoms of a deeper problem, uh, but many organizations have to do um, intentional work to help their leaders and their other stakeholders identify what uh, the source of a conflict is, and then equipping them with the skills to be confident and competent in disrupting it. So um, one thing I always tell folks is that conflict is good. Right. That means that it's revealing to us something deeper that we probably have been ignoring or is coming to the surface now by not addressing it. We are um, perpetuating harm and also possibly being complicit in the harm as well, too. And so when it comes to fearing open conflict, uh, we really have to challenge just our perspectives on uh, change in our perspectives on comfort because someone else's comfort is not more important than my safety, right? And when we think about wellness and belonging and safety in organizations, um, it's our responsibility as organizational leaders to ensure that um, a culture exists where folks can effectively resolve, hold people accountable, and heal as well too. Someone's comfort is not more important than my safety. Wow. Right. And I think we see this, especially in the work that we do, is that a lot of times certain people's comfort is being chosen over the psychological safety of other individuals. And often it's many individuals, right? Those in underrepresented groups. And so I think it's really important to acknowledge that safety and, and comfort piece. Something else you said that's really important is you have to recognize, right? These things, we have to name them. And so I want to encourage those out there. You likely weren't talk, taught about 
white supremacy culture, diversity, equity, and inclusion, implicit bias in school. And so like Jasmine said, why when it comes to technology are we so willing to upgrade? We're so willing to acknowledge that what we did even a year ago or two years ago pre-pandemic, there's no way we could operate the same way. And so I really love that challenge. Can we treat talking about DEI, white supremacy culture, bias, can we treat it the same way? That there's no way we should have the same practices from five to 10 years ago when our workplaces, the demographics of them are completely different. So I, I think that's a great challenge for those watching or listening is why can't we think of these topics like we do technology and innovation? Um, I love the, the conflict, right? One of my favorite leadership books is The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And right, not addressing conflict is one of those five things. And so you may need help, again, learning how to start breaking down some of these white supremacy culture attributes in your culture. How do we start to have conflict? How do we start to have courageous conversations? How can I collaborate more when I've been taught competition? And so I think, you know, we are here to help you. I can attest that Jasmine is amazing at collaborating, right? She has helped me so much even as a leader to go, wait, I don't have to carry all this, right? You need to bring in amazing people around you. And this isn't a pipeline and recruitment discussion, but it's why it's so important to build strong teams, to acknowledge different strengths, because then it makes all of this much easier. So Jasmine, this was such a powerful conversation. One, uh, we definitely will share with our clients because I think it'll help them to think differently. And so I just want to pass, pass the mic to you and see if you have any final thoughts for us uh, on this topic today of how can we recognize and disrupt a biased workplace culture and, write, and name white supremacy culture. Yeah, thanks so much, Antonetta, for this opportunity and for uh, such a great conversation. The last thing I'll say is that um, the way we can continue disrupting white supremacy is by committing to being imperfect and by committing to constantly being disruptive. And you can do that in large and small ways, right? Um, some In some organizations, in order to disrupt power hoarding, staff draft petitions so that they can um, disrupt that uh, historical decision-making process. Or in um, other organizations, managers really, really make it a priority to provide clear, consistent, constant feedback. So this means having weekly one-on-ones with their team members. I was shocked when I heard some managers only meet with their team members once a year for a performance appraisal. I was shocked because I was like, how in the world do you build a relationship with them? And then also, how do you know exactly what they're doing? <laughs> um, and so that's another way to disrupt those practices. Additionally, um, recognizing that whiteness does not make anyone inherently better, smarter, faster, more well-equipped. We have to disrupt 
right? This belief that being white is right or being white is better. And it starts with white folks doing their part in that work as well, too. I talked earlier about rest being resistance for BIPOC stakeholders and organizations. We must take care of ourselves, right? The way that white supremacy maintains itself is through our exploitation and exhaustion. And white folks, we need y'all to step up and speak out and be consistent in your imperfection as we strive to disrupt white supremacy culture. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, so beautiful, so beautiful. Thank you to Dr. Jasmine Marks. This is one to bookmark, to listen back to. So thank you, Jasmine, for, for being here with us today. Thank you so much for listening or watching episode 29, how to recognize and disrupt, that word is so important, disrupt a biased workplace culture. This was such an important talk and one that really does not get mentioned often in the diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation, but one that is so important. So thank you again to Dr. Jasmine Marks. If you or your team wants further help, uh, I Follow the Leader is here for you. We have trainings, discussions, opportunity to help you move along your DEI journey wherever you are today. We lead courageous conversations. We help to disrupt some of these norms through those trainings, discussions, but also long-term partnerships. And so DEI, like technology or, in, or marketing or anything else at your workplace, needs to be a long-term journey. And those resources need to be poured in. You also likely need outside expertise. And so just know we are here for you. Uh, so thankful again for Dr. Jasmine Marks. And we will see you again soon for another episode of Conversations with I Follow the Leader. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations with I Follow the Leader. We appreciate you. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episode alerts. To learn more about the firm, go to ifollowtheleader.com. I also want to encourage you, whether you're a change agent or leader, you can be a part of the solution. Now let's go make a positive impact and push the pace of progress. The world needs us.